We are obviously not in Zach's living room this morning. Um, so the last two weeks being on the other side of the computer screen, um, it's different on this side. So um, <clears throat> we apologize for any uh, technical difficulties there. But if, there's, if you guys can't hear me or whatever, text one of us. Uh, we want to make sure you are uh, joined with us together. But um, we're going to continue as we have been going through Matthew. Uh, We've been in chapter 10, looking really at the instructions uh, that Jesus gave to his disciples as he sent them out on mission. And I apologize for the dings that you'll be hearing. I do not know how to turn them off of my computer, so I will learn after this for sure. But as we continue through Matthew 10, uh, we saw how Jesus in in, in previous verses spoke of persecution that will... um, that will come, that as he sends them out, they will be like sheep um, in the midst of wolves, that they'll be mocking and beating and death that awaits them. But yet, as we heard last week, our fear should not be for those who do these awful things, but our fear should be towards God who controls our eternal fate. On Tuesday, January 3rd, 1956, so we're going back in time, After six years of praying and preparing for this exact moment on this day, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries landed for the first time on this small strip of land in the jungles of Ecuador to reach the people, uh, the Aqua people. And the Aquas, they were a notoriously dangerous people. No one to this point was able to reach them. And for three months, these five missionaries were, were uh, dro- or, uh, uh, flying their plane over the jungles, dropping down gifts, shouting out greetings to these people. And so when they landed on this day, on this small strip of land, actually on a beach, um, they, um, they, they built a hut and they waited for the Aqua people to come to them. And they knew the dangers. They knew what they were getting themselves into. Their wives even had discussed the possibility of becoming widows. And after a few days of waiting on this beach for the, for the aquas to come, a man and two women, two, uh, three aquas came, and they shared a meal with them. They gave them gifts, and they even took the aqua man up in the airplane to fly over the jungles. It was a positive first interaction, and these five men eagerly awaited for more to come and visit. On Sunday, January 8th, just two days later... They were due into radio at 4.30 p.m., but there was, there was silence. No message came to their wives, and so a search party was sent out, and four of their bodies sadly were discovered, speared to death, and the fifth body was never recovered. All of these men were married. Four of them were fathers. One wife was pregnant. In fact, a three-year-old child was, was heard telling the, the, a newborn crying baby, he said this, never you mind, this is a three-year-old saying, never you mind, when we get to heaven, I'll show you which one is daddy. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim, would actually return to the Aqua people for, for some years with her daughter and minister to them. And she wrote about the reasons why her husband landed that plane in the jungle that day. She said this, She said, because they knew, speaking collectively, because they knew they belonged to God, because God was their creator and their redeemer, 
They had no choice but to willingly obey him. And that meant obeying his command to take the good news to every nation. After Jim Elliott's death, um, his journal was recovered. And scribbled inside is this sentence. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's now a famous expression, but Jim Elliott in his journal wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And what I find bound up in the spirit of Jim Elliott and, the, and these four other men and their wives what is what's so key to genuine faith in Christ. That is to be so utterly consumed with the cause of Christ that you literally have no thought for your life. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to say to us as we continue in Matthew 10 this morning. So if you have a Bible or a digital copy, you can turn with me to chapter 10 as we finish the chapter in verses 34 through 42. And I'll read them to you. Hopefully you can follow along with me. But starting in verse 34, this is Jesus's words. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loses father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Well, if I can be honest with you this morning, this text has incredibly tough statements for us to reconcile together. That, that Jesus says, I, I did not come to bring peace but division. That, that Jesus said, hey, I'm going to break up your families as you're gathered right now in your own living rooms. I'm coming to break you up. That, um, that you actually need to love me more than your families. You need to love me more than your own life. These are incredibly tough statements. But the more I meditated on this passage this week, the more I found that by making these statements, Jesus is is actually helping uh, you and I discover where we stand. Meaning that these statements of Jesus, they're so absolute that there's no possibility of staying ambivalent towards Jesus. The question really we find today is, are you with Jesus? Are you with Jesus? For one either has to to love him or to hate him. There's no neutrality. It's impossible to be neutral about Jesus. So our question is, are you with Jesus or not? 
Let's pray again as we consider God's word. Father, open your word. Open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Lord, we ask that you, by your spirit and by your word, would prune back any hedge that blinds us from seeing and loving you more. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, to help us know where we stand in our text, Jesus is going to give us two warnings and a hope. He's going to offer us two warnings and a hope. So the first warning that we see that Jesus gives to us is the warning that the gospel divides. The gospel divides. Look with me in verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now this is, this is a striking statement. It, it should startle us. It should awaken us. And, and the reference to the sword here, I want to be clear, it's not a reference to violence. Um, because if you look at the parallel passage later on in, 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 in the account of in Luke, in the gospel account of Luke, in chapter 12, you'll see there that Luke says, Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. The sword is not a reference to violence. Scholars will agree there, but it's, it's rather division. And of course, swords divide, right? Swords cut in two. And so when Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, he's really saying, I came to bring division. But this is such a confusing statement to our ears, but especially to a Jewish audience, his disciples. Because Jews understood that the Messiah would be a conquering king, that he would overthrow the oppression, establish a kingdom of peace. And this understanding, it comes right from Old Testament prophecies. We all know Isaiah 9, 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Which is why in Luke 2, when the, the angels come to the shepherds in the night that Jesus was born, and they say, they say Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. Even the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, he says, Jesus himself is our peace who has made both Jew and Gentile one. And an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit we know is what? It's peace. So which is it? Did Jesus come to bring peace, which I find evidence throughout all of Scripture, or did Jesus come to bring division? Peace or division? Well, the answer is, yeah. He did. Jesus' statement here is deliberately paradoxical. You see, the sword is the effect of his coming. Jesus entered our space, time, and history with a message that's going to cut like a sword. It's going to fracture our world into two. Some, yes, will accept Christ. Others will reject Christ. Jesus is warning, therefore, his disciples that before this promised kingdom of peace, they should expect much division as they declare and demonstrate his message. Martin Luther said, if our gospel were received in peace, it wouldn't be the true gospel. And he certainly experienced much division. Because if Christ never came, here's the reality, all of earth in unity would have been doomed straight to hell. But Jesus entered our world, and therefore a battle rages for truth. 
And Jesus qualifies where we might expect this division in our lives. Look at verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, the, the word translated set there in, that, in those verses, it literally means to like cut into two, like that of a sword. So by Jesus' entrance into our world, families, he's saying, may be divided. Now, as I think about it, I'm like, well, Jesus, if you would have said, like, my entrance would divide us maybe against neighbor or boss, like, okay, I can deal with that. But he's saying, I've come and I may fracture your family. And that's quite uncomfortable because family is where you want peace. Family is where you want to keep intimacy. Family represents really the greatest of all human relationships. And for a Jew, Jesus' words would have been virtually inconceivable. Because for loving family, especially loving your parents in Judaism, was like the highest order. No rabbi of Jesus' day even comes close to touching this. But yet what Jesus says here has in fact been a reality historically experienced all around the globe, right? Think about the global church. Talk to our partners in North Africa where the decision to publicly follow Christ likely results in total alienation from your family. In fact, sadly, many places around the globe, if you follow, make that decision to follow Christ, your family will actually hold a a, a funeral for your quote-unquote death. And some of you listening today, I know, have experienced this same thing, to make that decision to follow Christ. Maybe it's a parent, a sibling, a, a grandparent, a child. But those within your family who have maybe distanced or alienated themselves from you because of your confession of Christ. This is what Jesus says. This is the sword. And please hear me on this. This is not always the case, nor does it need to be the case. Jesus is simply warning his disciples that if you choose to follow me, you can expect You can expect that those closest to you, your family, perhaps, may alienate themselves from you. And did you know as you read through the gospel that Jesus' own family, Jesus' own family, um, he didn't always accept who Jesus claimed to be. He experienced this hostility because Jesus never brings us into anything that he himself has not experienced. You know, Jesus did not come to bring us our best life now. I'm convinced of that. He did not come to bring us our best life now. In fact, what he's saying here is that your life may very well be downright miserable because of your attachment to me. People hated Jesus, and people will hate you. And this hatred, Jesus warns, may very well even extend into the walls of your family. So this is the first warning. The gospel divides. The gospel divides. The second warning that we see is that the gospel demands. The gospel demands. We see this in verses 37 through 39. Jesus has three back-to-back-to-back sentences to articulate how the gospel demands. Look with me first at the first demand in verse 37. 
Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In some, Jesus is saying simply, hey, you can't be my disciple if your family means more to you than I do. Our greatest allegiance and devotion is that of Christ. That even our most profound and significant human relationship can never take precedent over our relationship with Christ. The second demand that we see is in verse 38. Jesus says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now at this point in Matthew, it's important to note that the disciples have no idea that Jesus is going to die on a cross. But they did understand that a cross equated to a death sentence. For historically, there was recently, at this time, an insurrection in Galilee against the Roman oppression, against the Roman rule. Yet the Romans crushed that uh, insurrection. And to teach the Jews a lesson, thousands of Jews were crucified on crosses up and down every road in Galilee so that everywhere people went, they were vividly reminded of what happens if you're executed. And in crucifixion, the beam was always placed on the one who was going to be crucified. And they would carry the very means by which they would die to the spot that they would be executed. And crucifixion, it, it's slow. It's the slumping of the body on the wounds created by the nails. It not only causes the excruciating pain at the point of the wound, but over time, it eventually suffocates your internal organs. Historians tell us that the most excruciating death ever invented was that of the crucifixion. You see, not only does Jesus demand love over family, Jesus now says to us, hey, my disciples are those who are willing to die for my sake, to endure the most excruciating, painful, torturous death ever imagined. And the third demand in verse 39, Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, it's not just the willingness to die, but it's that determination that it's far more glorious to lose everything in this life, whether it's your ease or your comfort or your security, your safety, whatever it is, than it would be to forsake your faith in Christ. Because the one who confesses Jesus and suffers for it is far better off than the apostate who escapes the temporary discomfort of this earthly life and who ultimately receives eternal damnation. In actuality, Jesus is saying those willing to lose this, this whatever it is in this temporal life, are far better off. They will be the ones who will find eternal life in the end. That's the second warning that we have from Jesus is that the gospel demands. So that those who follow Christ are to, to love Jesus with a love greater than their love for their own family and a greater love than that of self-preservation or comfort. Now, I want to I backpedal a little bit here because I want to I draw out an incredibly staggering claim 
that Jesus is making through these sentences. Notice as you look at those three sentences, who is the subject? Who is the subject of all three of those sentences? It's Jesus, right? Jesus has placed himself at the center and object of our faith. You know, imagine with me any religious leader. Imagine myself making these statements that Jesus just made, right? Vine Church. If you don't love me more than your husband or wife or kid, guess what? You're not worthy of me. Now, that, that would be an insane statement, and you should leave this church, right? But yet, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says that unless you love me more than your own kid, you're not worthy of me. You see, Jesus is either the, the, the absolute worst cult leader of all time, or he's something far different. The Son of God. And that's the question I asked at the beginning is, hey, are you with Jesus? You see, by making these radical statements in our text, Jesus is clearly establishing the dividing line, helping all of us, you and I, both know and understand which side of the sword do we stand. This text is is about commitment. It's about our supreme affection. It's about our total allegiance. It's about absolute, our absolute authority in our life. You see, Jesus is asking for a commitment at any cost. He's saying, hey, do you treasure and love me more than anything or anyone in this world? Do you treasure and love me more than anything or anyone in this world. Emily and I, my wife, we dated for three years. And our relationship really took two different paths um, over the course of those years. And, and the first six months of our relationship, uh, we spent a ton of time obviously getting to know each other. We had so much fun exploring the city of Chicago uh, where we lived at the time. Uh, I think, you know, as we reflect back on that time of our lives, I'd say it, it's fairly easy to categorize those early months of our dating relationship really with this category of, hey, we loved ourselves. <laughs> uh, there was this proving to each other of just our care for each other, which is typical, right, as you begin dating somebody. You want the other person to know that you care for them. I know we would plan dates in certain parts of the city and just we'd go all in with these crazy things that we would do and say, hey, look what I, this date experience that I made for you, or hey, look at this note or some way I I, I showed you that I care for you. But it was like in this competing, like always one-upping each other. Like, hey, I saw you do that, but hey, look what I'm doing to show how much I care for you. Unfortunately, now, unfortunately at the time, uh, our relationship just train wrecked. We were both Christians at the time, but here's the reality. Christ really was not the center of it. We were. And after a year of, of, of being separated, we got back together, and, and the second path, the second journey of our relationship looked very different. And this time, it, was, it wasn't so much about proving to each other the worthiness of our love, but it was really putting or positioning the other uh, to know Christ more. Jesus became our center, not, not perfectly, but it was a direction that we were headed. And ultimately, it made our relationship different. 
What Emily and I discovered as we think back to our dating and even as we think back to our marriage right now is that when Christ becomes center, when we love Jesus first, it frees us to love the other in more significant ways. You see, because our affections and allegiances become properly ordered. This is the truth. You will love your family uh, most when you love Jesus more. You will love your family most when you love Jesus more. In no way, in no way in this, in this passage, I want you to hear this, is Jesus implying to live with some sort of unloving attitude towards your family or towards those whom you share significant relationship with. That's not Jesus' point. That's not what's happening in this text. For when, when, when people come to Jesus, when people accept the gospel, this is the reality. We become better spouses. We become better parents. We become better siblings. We become better friends. Because that's what Jesus and the gospel does. It teaches us how to do that. And if Jesus is your greatest love, then your greatest priority in any earthly relationship would be that of pointing others to Christ. And so, and so we, we look at our meaningful relationships, perhaps where you're gathered right now, whether it's a spouse or a friend, and we simply ask the question, like, where are you promoting their love and loyalty? Is it, is it first to you or is it to Jesus? You, you look at where are you pointing that person's priorities? You know, look at your past calendar appointments or your future appointments. Is it designed to center their lives around Jesus? Is that the centering? Parents, this is tough. Are you teaching your kids to obey Jesus more than you? Are you teaching your kids to obey Jesus more than you? Where, parents, are you directing your kids' priorities and loyalties? Look at your weekly family rhythm and schedule. Is it designed to center your kids' lives and affections to the person of Jesus? If Jesus is your greatest love, then your greatest priority in any earthly relationship would be appointing others to Christ. You see, Jesus has said to us this morning, do you treasure and love me more than anything or anyone in this world? To, to, to love me, to love Jesus more than your kids, to, to pick up your cross, a death sentence, and follow me. This is not an easy or fun sled. Like, this is not easy or fun. And perhaps you're sitting there just like, this sacrifice is, is too burdensome. This cost is too high. Let me encourage you to refocus those thoughts because you're not wrong. Let me encourage you to refocus those thoughts. On August 13th, 2011, at 4 p.m., in front of hundreds of people, the doors opened and Emily and her father walked down the aisle on her wedding day. And although I stood at the front, right, and there was literally hundreds of people sitting there, actually standing there, do you know where I was looking? Do you know what I was thinking? 
My eyes were fixed on Emily. And my singular, overwhelming thought, despite all these people, and despite what is marriage even going to look like, despite all of that, despite all that noise, my singular, most overwhelming thought as I looked at Emily was, I am gaining you. I'm gaining you in my life. What better thing to gain in any one of our lives than to gain God himself, the creator of the universe? I was lost, but he found me. You see, this is the treasure that you and I have gained in Jesus. He's calling you into this life. And yes, there is great sacrifice. We're not minimizing that. But he's calling you into a love in which he's already fully demonstrated that he's all in. He's all in. He's already demonstrated, hey, come into this. I'm all in. And if we focus on this truth, a passage such as this, it's never a burden. I love the lyrics <clears throat> of all I have in Christ. <clears throat> I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to let Eric do that in a little bit. <clears throat> but the lyrics go like this. And as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. That's our treasure. Amen. I know we're not gathered together, but I expect to see some amens on that Facebook stream. And I can see that stream. But as we finish our text this morning, we finally are going to see the hope. The hope that the gospel rewards. In verse 40, Jesus says, Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. When we bring the sword, the truth of Christ, some are not going to believe, but there will be others who do believe and accept the message of Christ. And they will accept Christ because of your going out and declaring and demonstrating the message of Christ. This is a marvelous thing. Don't let this be lost on you. Because God's using frail human beings, me and you, as a vehicle for others to know him. And Jesus adds on in verses 41 and 42, hey, it doesn't matter if you're the one who's going out, such as like a prophet, or the one receiving in the ministry worker. We all, we all share this same great reward. So as we conclude, we have two warnings the first warning is that the gospel divides. If you are to side with Jesus, the gospel message, it may divide you from the most meaningful relationships in your life. And the second warning is that the gospel demands. 
That if you side with Jesus, the gospel requires you to treasure and love Jesus more than anything or anyone in this world. And yet, Jesus offers this beautiful gospel hope that though frail and weak in our faith, you and I are the vehicles for others to know the person of Jesus through our declaration and demonstration. This week, I ran across a historical reflection about Napoleon. I just want to read it to you as we finish up. It says this, It was in the dead of winter, and the French army was pressed on all sides by the Russians, and they had destroyed all the bridges. Napoleon was at his wit's end. He had no way to escape. Suddenly there came an order that they might build a bridge across the river immediately behind them. And the men nearest the water were the first to carry out the almost impossible task. Others, after a few minutes, sank through cold and exhaustion. Some were swept away with the force of the moving icy water. But more and more men came, and the work proceeded as fast as possible. At last, the bridge was complete, and the army reached the opposite bank and was completely safe. When the men who had built the bridge were called to leave the water... Not one of them moved. Clinging to the pillars, they stood silent and motionless, frozen to death. Their arms fixed against the woodwork of the pillars. It says that Napoleon, who witnessed this awful scene, could not restrain his tears. You see, this captures the words of Jesus that we willingly give our lives in such a way to be a bridge for others to cross over, to know the hope and love and salvation of Jesus, to be utterly consumed with the treasure of Christ that we literally have no thought of our earthly life. Remember Jim Elliot and the jungles of Ecuador. That is what compelled them to land the plane. And in pondering her husband's death, Elizabeth Elliot wrote this. When Jim died, he left little value as the world regards value. No, what Jim left for me is the testimony of a man who sought nothing but the will of God. Our obedience to God, it may cost us everything. Tragically, Jim lost his life at age 28. But his reward is eternally priceless. It's beyond worldly value. Jim Elliott will never lose his reward. When we give up all for Jesus, we gain the only life that is life indeed, eternal life. It is worth it, Vine Church, to side with Jesus. He is our greatest treasure. And perhaps you just feel overwhelmed by this. I want to close, and I really mean it this time. I want to close with just how the message renders verses 41 and 42. So I think they capture it beautifully. They say this, and again, this is Jesus' words in their, in their word. It says, this is a large work, Jesus speaking. This is a large work. Hey, I've called you into a large work, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who is thirsty. The smallest act of giving or receiving makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on anything. 
You see, Jim Elliot did not wake up one morning and head right to the jungles. It was a journey over time, many years, that ultimately led him to that point. It was responding in faith to what God was calling him to. One step at a time. One step at a time. The question where we ultimately land today is, am I obeying Jesus with what's in front of me right now? Am I obeying Jesus with what's in front of me right now? I was going to pray for all of us. And we're actually going to sing a song. If you're still with us, we'd love to sing a song with you as we close. But Jesus, you are our greatest treasure. Lord, thank you for your salvation, for the hope that we have in you. Lord, be our help. Be our source of strength. May we see you rightly. May we worship you correctly. Lord, help us to declare and to demonstrate with our lives that we might be a bridge that others may see the beauty of the treasure of who you are. Lord, we need you. We desperately need you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Well, Eric and Adriana are going to sing with us or for us. All I have is Christ. I encourage you to hang with us and to do that and to reflect on these words this morning, Jesus' words. I also just want to say at the bottom of your song lyric sheet, there are questions, perhaps in your family or however you're gathered this morning, that you can talk or walk through those questions. Uh, I also want to you know that, hey, I will be on the Vines Facebook. It's me behind the computer. If you have any questions, you always want to dialogue, let me know. And as well, Jordan is going to be starting in a couple minutes a Zoom video uh, chat where you guys can join together and just kind of talk through these questions. So if that is something you would like to do, uh, we'll send out the link here momentarily. You can join that. Let's sing and worship Jesus, our greatest treasure.